It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Sego Ani Bonjour. I'm Kathy Sabokin, and this is Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Filling in today for David Moses and my guest today, NDP MPP Suze Morrison, representing Toronto Centre. Welcome, Suze. Good morning. Great to have you. It's our first time yeah, happy having to be you here. as our guest. Just want to go over a little bit of your background, a lot going on. A member of the Standing Committee on Public Accounts. Not sure what that is. Yeah, what so it's the uh, legislative committee that follows the money. Uh, so it's it's our job to, uh, you know, look at the audits that come back from the Auditor General and make sure that the government is spending its money wisely. Good to know that yeah. the audits are then looked at again a yeah, second yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. And then like we that. report that back to the legislature as a whole. So it's a really important tool, um, particularly of the official opposition. Um, it's one of the tools that we have to hold government accountable. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's good, good. And we were counting on you then to look for those <laughs> discrepancies. <laughs> hey, yes. Now, before you were elected to provincial office, you worked as a communications professional with Indigenous and healthcare nonprofits across Ontario. Mm-hmm. And let's find out more about you because you're new in the role of MPP. You're a rookie MPP. I am, yeah. yeah. One of many. Uh, you know, we have uh, right now, I think it's 75 or 76 new MPPs in the legislature, a uh, record number of rookies. Uh, and I think it's really exciting because it's really changed the face of what the legislature looks like. We're a lot younger. We have a lot more women, a lot more racialized folks, uh, queer folks. Uh, it's it's really increased the representation. So it's a really exciting time uh, to be in the legislature for sure. And what led you to run and want this kind of a job in the first place? I mean, you're going from communications to suddenly an MPP. Yeah, well, I'd always been really politically involved. Uh, you know, I... Uh, helped uh, co-found an organization when I was living in London, Ontario called Women in Politics. And we were looking at how to increase the representation of women in government. And uh, that work really inspired me. I got uh, a chance to work with a lot of fantastic women uh, out in uh, southwestern Ontario. And then when I moved back to Toronto, I started getting really politically involved in my neighborhood as well. Uh, And one of my, I think, key uh, drivers that really kind of pushed me over the edge and said, uh, you know, if not now, when, when I was thinking about running, uh, was in the summer of 2017. Uh, my husband and I actually witnessed a shooting uh, on at the corner of Regent and Cole Street, just around the corner from our apartment. And um, it was the same week that uh, we lost Pam McConnell. Uh, she passed Aww, away that yeah, same week. She was, she was fantastic. She was a beloved city councillor, for those who don't know her. And uh, she had really been a champion for Regent Park. She had uh, been a champion for uh, anti-poverty initiatives. And uh, she was a a fantastic leader. And um, it was going to be really hard to lose her voice uh, uh, representing the community. And so I was kind of wrapped up in uh, doing some community healing work around the the gun violence that we were going through that summer uh, and feeling really scared that we were going to end up with representatives following in her footsteps that didn't understand the issues that we were facing in Regent Park and didn't understand the the depth of the poverty that we were seeing in our community. Um, and uh, and so I threw my hat in the ring and said, you know, if not now, when? Uh, <laughs> right, and, I like uh, that. Okay, so when you're, you had all these fears, things yeah. were going to, okay, well, then I'll be the change maker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I honestly, I didn't expect to win. You know, when I, when I ran for the nomination for my party, uh, for the Riding Association, 
it was a contested nomination and against some, uh, you know, I was running against some truly fantastic folks. Uh, you know, nominations uh, are always a really exciting and interesting time because you're running against people in your own party uh, that you share values with. Sure. <laughs> and um, and uh, trying to, you know, uh, uh, explain why to, to folks why you think you're the best person uh, to represent uh, the riding in the election. And uh, and I loved the guys I was running against, uh, you know, some really fantastic leaders in the community. And so when I went into it, you know, I was in the headspace of, uh, you know, I'm never going to win. Um, you know, I'm definitely not as experienced. And uh, but maybe I could see myself doing this in 10 or 15 years. Uh, so I'll go learn how a nomination works and then come back around uh, the next time. Uh, and uh, certainly, I think, did a lot better than I was expecting. It, it to. went all the way. That's incredible. <laughs> Well, how are you liking the job? What are some highlights about I, the job itself? Oh, I love it. It's, um, you know, it's it's certainly difficult times to be uh, an MPP, I think, under a conservative government. I'm not going to sugarcoat that one. But uh, the work itself is phenomenal, and it's such a privilege. Uh, I think one of the most exciting parts for me is uh, my caucus uh, and getting to be part of a team that has gender parity. And so I every day I get to go to work and and uh, learn from some of the truly phenomenal, experienced uh, women in my caucus uh, who have really taken the time uh, to mentor uh, the younger MPPs that have come up. And uh, we have a really exciting caucus, really diverse, really passionate uh, folks from all walks of life. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, it speaks to you that you know, lived experience is just as important as formal experience as legislators, because when we go into that place, we're storytellers more than anything. And we get to stand up in our chairs and tell the stories of our communities and tell our own lived experience and use those stories to speak to how policy is going to impact our communities in different and nuanced ways that people haven't considered. So it's about taking, you know, the boring um, you know, legalese that, that is right. the way the legislation is written right. and, and turning it into something that, that people can understand and relate to. Uh, and uh, I think that that's a really, really important role. Like, you know, it's, it's yes. we're storytellers yes. more than anything. Yes. And I think in terms of people, the, pub, the, the little bit of a change in public um, feelings I can think about politicians that they're would you say people are looking more for real people as opposed to a politician yeah Not I, that there's anything wrong with being a seasoned politician because experiences count I think but but I think people want someone real someone they can relate to yeah and I think it's uh, absolutely and I think it's important that um, you know people come from all walks of life that we have folks who were, you know, nurses and farmers and uh, accountants and uh, activists, uh, folks from the nonprofit sector, uh, you know, all of those people come into the legislature to represent their communities. And it's it's not like we all went to politician school. Uh, right, <laughs> right. You know, it's, um, you know, we've found our way into this work because, uh, you know, we believe in something and we believe that we can make our communities better. Uh, you know, one decision, one choice, one idea at a time. And that's really in a way all that, you know, that's how I like to think about politics, right? It's it's making our communities better one idea at a time. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 LMN FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And I'm Kathy Sabokin filling in for David Moses with my guest, Suze Morrison. 
NDP, MPP for Toronto Centre. What are the boundaries of Toronto Centre for those who don't know? It is actually the smallest, most densely populated electoral district anywhere in the country. It's only seven square kilometres. It goes from about Bloor Street in the north down to the Esplanade in the south, uh, from the Don Valley Parkway in the east over to about Bay Street on the west. Uh, But it does cut in to Young Street for a little bit there. And a lot of neighbourhoods in there. A lot of neighbourhoods. You've got Cabbage Town, Regent Park. Moss Park. Corktown. The Village. Uh, uh, St. Jamestown, uh, the Garden District, the Young Bay Corridor. Yeah, there's I mean, the St. They're, Lawrence they're Market. Vastly yeah. different, vastly different yeah. things going on. Yeah. Where did you grow up exactly? Yeah, so I grew up uh, kind of in the northwest corner of the riding, uh, mm-hmm. just up on Charles Street. And mm-hmm. uh, my mom had gone back to school uh, when I was just nine years old. Uh, so we had moved to Toronto from up north. And uh, she only had a 10th grade education and no job and wanted to make a better life for us. So she got her GED and got accepted into U of T. So we actually grew up in the um, the student family housing buildings on Charles Street there oh for U of T. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and, uh, and lived there until I went off to university. Uh, so it's... Uh, it's uh, yeah, I, you know, all of my childhood memories are of things like, uh, you know, partying uh, on Young Street uh, after the Olympics, uh, you know, when we were uh, winning medals or, or when the Leafs games would let out right. and the parties coming up Young Street, uh, pride parades, uh, you know, uh, everywhere I go in the downtown uh, are all of my, you know, childhood memories kind yes. of buried into the into the concrete. And you have an Indigenous background as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, um, so I identify as mixed Indigenous and settler, uh, and it's uh, a really complicated history for me. You know, we have uh, foster care uh, in multiple generations on both sides of my family. And so it's, uh, it's made it really hard to, you know, point to a place on a map and say definitively, you know, this is the, the place we come from. Uh, but it's been largely the, the urban communities that have caught my family um, you know, as we've uh, gone through the process of trying to, um, you, know, you know, not let our history uh, uh, slip away from us uh, and really have had to fight <laughs> um, to understand uh, what that identity means and, and, um, and to, to reclaim teachings and culture along the way. Uh, but it's really been the urban community that kind of picked us up and, and caught us and, uh, you know, gave us a space in the community as I was growing up. And in your riding, there's a lot of Indigenous population in the riding yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, Toronto, Toronto as a whole has, uh, you know, the largest urban Indigenous population in Canada. Um, and a lot of those folks are in uh, the downtown core. And we also have, uh, you know, a large number of the service providers that are servicing the community right here downtown. I mean, we have, you know, Council Fire, Native Child and Family Services, um, uh, you know, a whole suite of organizations that are servicing the community right here in the riding. Well, right now, what does a typical day look like for you? Uh, there is no typical day, uh, but uh, uh, when the house is in session, uh, we have, uh, you know, some meetings in the morning. We get together as a caucus and figure out our strategy for the day. And then we go right into question period uh, every day at 1030. And that's the uh, the most dramatic part of our day is question period. Uh, and it's it's the time that we get to hold the government accountable so we get to stand up and ask questions about the decisions that they're making and the policies that they're implementing. And um, and it's the time that the the media comes and they sit in the gallery. And that's when they're kind of most closely, um, you know, checking in on on what's going on. So it's really our opportunity to, to make the news for the day. 
uh, and um, to, uh, you know, really highlight to the public uh, where the government, you know, may be falling down um, and letting them down on things. Uh, so it's a really important part of our day. Uh, and then in the afternoon, we either have committee meetings or we come back into the house and debate. Uh, and then in the evenings, it's uh, off to community and it's back to back events and 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 meetings. And uh, so it's a yeah, it's a full long day. Uh, but when the house isn't in session, uh, you know, the work doesn't stop. It's not like uh, we're no, on vacation. You were elected for a reason. <laughs> uh, it's not like we're on vacation. Uh, we're we're in our constituency offices uh, doing, uh, you know, re- the really important community work that keeps us grounded so that, um, you know, when we go back into the legislature, uh, we have the b- the ability to uh, represent our communities and, and tell their stories because we've, sp- we've spent those constituency weeks um, listening to them, sitting down with constituents, hearing their concerns, uh, identifying the issues, uh, you know, drafting new legislation uh, to bring back and table in the fall. Uh, you know, there's no shortage of work that happens in the off weeks. And we're going to dive into that in just a moment. We're going to take a little bit of a break first. My guest today, NDP MPP Suze Morrison, representing Toronto Centre. I'm Kathy Sabokin. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And we will be back after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app, or on our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses, my guest today, NDP MPP, Suze Morrison. She represents the riding of Toronto Centre. And by the way, we just played Jeremy Dutcher because I know you have a thing for Jeremy Dutcher. <laughs> What's that all about? Oh, I just think he's a fantastic artist. But uh, I have a really funny story. It's a tangential um, connection to him. I was at uh, Inside Out, which is the queer film festival here in Toronto. And I was at one of the the opening parties for that and uh, ended up meeting uh, the designer who designed the cape that he that Jeremy wore to the uh, Junos this year. Uh-huh. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, that was just fantastic. I got to, to meet the man who made the cape, the cape. The cape. And now you're following him on Instagram. Yeah, we're friends on Instagram now. So it's two degrees of separation. Maybe you'll get your own cape. <laughs> get him to make your own cape. As if you were saying, you're not sure where you'd wear the cape. No, it might be a bit of a, uh, of a, of a look uh, in the legislature. That's for sure a bold look. But uh, <laughs> maybe I could pull it off. <laughs> get attention, that's for sure. All right, now... When we were talking earlier about, you know, you know, where do you want to go with this conversation? I mean, you can make a lot of really strong faces when I mentioned the Ford government <laughs> and women. So let's go there. It's been a tough year for women in this province. Uh, you know, right after the election, uh, you know, the Ford government uh, went silent on the rape crisis centers. That was a big battle that we had this year. We, um, they were the rape crisis centers across Ontario were promised a 33% funding increase across the sector uh, just before the election, and after the election, the funding letters just never materialized, and the government wouldn't say one way or another whether they were actually cutting that funding. They just, uh, you know, gave the communities the silent treatment, which I think was really disrespectful, and so I went after them day after day in question period, uh, trying to find out. Uh, you know, when and where this money was, was supposedly coming. And it wasn't until almost the end of the fiscal year in the, in the spring 
when they finally came out and said that they were cutting that funding. Uh, and it was... Was it a surprise, though? <laughs> you know, was, not really. A lot of things are being cut, lot, unfortunately. Really. Yeah, there, and there have been a lot of cuts that have, you know, disproportionately affected women. You know, whether it was the retroactive funding cuts to the Ontario College of Midwives. Uh, you know, right. we're talking about the people that, uh, you know, do the sacred work of bringing new life into the world. Right. Um, and, you know, pulling the funding out from underneath uh, their college. Uh, you know, the cuts to the rape crisis centers, um, you know, and, and even policies and decisions that aren't, you know, necessarily gendered when you look at them on the surface. But, uh, you know, the rollback of the $15 minimum wage had a huge uh, effect on women because we know that women make up the majority of, of minimum minimum wage of jobs. Workers, yes. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a cut that, again, disproportionately affects women when you start breaking it down. Uh, so it's been you know, a really hard year with a lot of, um, with a lot of cuts. And so the, the cuts to the rape crisis centers, what kind of an effect is that going to have? Well, we're seeing wait lists skyrocket. Um, we have been, uh, for years now, for years, uh, in many communities, the wait list for, uh, one-on-one counseling at the rape crisis centers is up to 18 months long, uh, which is just, Outrageous. No woman uh, should have to wait 18 months for counseling after a sexual assault. No, that should be immediate. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the funding increase that the centers were getting uh, was going to go directly to hiring staff. It was going right. to go to things like, uh, you know, uh, counseling and uh, peer education. Uh, and it's really uh, heartbreaking that that funding is now not flowing to those communities. And it's, it's so needed. And I even want to backtrack on that. It shouldn't happen at all. Let yeah. alone having to get counseling right after it shouldn't happen at all. Yeah. So how, what, what's going on in terms of helping with this whole issue in the broader sense? Well, I think it's only going to get worse. I mean, we have a government that came in and, uh, you know, one of their first orders of business was uh, cutting consent education from our school curriculum. Right. Uh, and so not only did they cut out queer and trans identities uh, from the curriculum, uh, but they, they started uh, removing the consent-based uh content as well and you know we know that that's upstream how you prevent sexual violence is by teaching is education and by teaching you know young kids as early as you can uh, about consent uh, and you know it can be as simple as teaching you know little kids to ask permission before giving each other hugs uh, you know it's it it um, it's a really important part of our education system and you know when you're simultaneously cutting the education, cutting the funding for survivors uh, and, uh, you know, cuts to uh, everything in between, you know, the wraparound health services, things like that. Uh, it's, uh, you know, making things a lot harder for, for women in Ontario. Now, has anything happened regarding the sex ed curriculum since when Ford got elected? Because that was one of the first things that, that got rolled back. Yeah, I mean, what's been really amazing to see is the level of community organizing across the province. Uh, so in, in, in a way that uh, we haven't seen in a long time. And, and communities really came together uh, and the students came together to defend their curriculum and to fight the government. Um, and we did see pieces of that um, uh, curriculum come back in. But uh, it was really the, the, the community coming together and joining with New Democrats 
uh, to fight the Ford government. Uh, and it's it's a really exciting time in that way. And it hasn't just been on the sex ed curriculum. It's been, you know, families of children with autism coming together and joining with New Democrats uh, in a massive way to fight those cuts. It's uh, been uh, communities, uh, education workers and students coming together uh, to fight the cuts to the education system. Uh, it's uh, it's truly phenomenal uh, to watch, uh, especially the young people standing up and uh, you know, finding their feet as young activists. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Now on cuts, also there were cuts to Indigenous programs. Yeah, substantial. Uh, I mean, cuts to, I know you had uh, Jill Andrew and Saul Mamakwa on the show a few months back yes, talking did. about the cuts to the um, Indigenous Culture Fund uh, as one example. Uh, and uh, when the budget came out this year, there were massive cuts to um, the Ministry of Indigenous Affairs and, and Reconciliation which is not actually called Indigenous Affairs and Reconciliation anymore. It's actually embedded in the Ministry of Mining, uh, which I find truly okay. outrageous. Uh, you know, when, when they collapsed that ministry, it really, I think, signaled to community that, you know, the relationship that the government, uh, the framing that the government had for its relationship with Indigenous people was based on the resources that can be extracted from the land and that that was the basis of the relationship, not one of, uh, you know, true and meaningful reconciliation. Uh, so, you know, even when you're not looking at, you know, direct cuts or, or, or funding or programs and services, the approach that they're taking to the file, uh, I think, is taking taking us backwards. Okay. So there are these issues, the approaches taken to the file, et cetera. And what what are what is the NDP party doing to make those changes? You mentioned there's a lot of social action, but mm-hmm. where are we now in terms of getting what you want out of it? Yeah, absolutely. So we had um, Saul Mamakwa actually tabled uh, a private member's bill not that long ago. I feel like it was maybe a month or so ago. On uh, we had second reading of it, and it's uh, to uh, adopt UNDRIP uh, across the province. Uh, so it passed second reading, so it's now at committee, uh, and we're continuing to fight to get that uh, legislation passed. Uh, so I think that's one, you know, really strong example of, um, uh, you know, the work that um, is underway. And I think that, uh, you know, the other piece that, you know, from within our party that I think is 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 really important is, um, you know, the f- the the push for clean drinking water in the north and. Uh, you know, Andrea has been uh, unequivocal on a number of, of occasions that, uh, you know, the days of bickering over which level of government is responsible uh, for, like, uh, for fixing the clean drinking water in the it. north is um, is not the right conversation to have. And that, uh, you know, if we form government, we're committed to addressing the clean drinking water crisis in the north and uh, sending the bill to Ottawa where it rightfully belongs. Uh, but that, you know... Uh, Ford's response to, uh, you know, saying that it's a federal, it's federal jurisdiction is not the point, <laughs> you know, fighting over, over who pays the bill, uh, is not the right approach. Uh, communities deserve, uh, the right to clean drinking water. Right. It's been just going on way too long, too long years and years for some, for some folks. Well, my guest right now is Suze Morrison, standing committee on public accounts. She has her honors BA from University of Guelph and a diploma in public relations and then dove into politics. And here she is a rookie MPP representing 
a large swath of Toronto, well, a really important swath, yeah. Toronto Centre. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to find out about some things going on in the community. I'm Kathy Sabokin. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 LMNFM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, also on the Radio Player Canada app, and our website, lmnfm.ca, that's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm filling in today for David Moses. We will be right back after this break. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app, or our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. And my guest today, NDP MPP, Suze Morrison, representing the riding of Toronto Centre. So what's happening in your riding that's most exciting right now? Well, it's Pride Month, mm-hmm. and I have the very special privilege of uh, having the village in my in my electoral district. Uh, so it's, it's a busy month for us. We're getting ready for, for the marches and uh, all of the really important events, like some of the vigils uh, that come along with Pride Month as well. Uh, so that's uh, something pretty big happening. Uh, Are you planning the to march in the parade? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, alongside Andrea, uh, we'll all be there. Uh, but uh, there's also some not so great stuff going on in the riding, too. We've had, um, uh, you know, housing as a whole, I think, is a, is a really big challenge in the riding. Uh, and specifically up in our St. Jamestown neighborhood, uh, we had uh, last summer a substantial uh, electrical fire in one of the apartment buildings. On the one on Parliament Street? Yeah, that... 650 Parliament Street. Yeah. Right. And uh, we continue to have 1,500 people from that building displaced in our community. Uh, and can you even imagine, you know, some of those folks are living in hotels. And I have can't for, imagine. For a full year for now. Mo- oh, that's... Yeah. Why and, is that taking so long to resolve? Uh, you know, the, the damage to the building was uh, unlike anything I think, uh, you know, even folks in the fire department had ever seen. Uh, and uh, it's taking uh, a really long time to remediate the building, and, and uh, it's hurting a lot of families in the process who've been displaced. And uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, there's uh, not really a good timeline for folks to be able to move back home. They'd originally said August this summer, which would have been a full year since the fire, and now they're saying well into the fall. But um, so one of the things that uh, I did in response to that uh, was uh, I tabled a bill called the St. Jamestown Act. Uh, that I'm really excited about. And uh, it will work to hold, if we can get it passed, uh, to hold landlords uh, more accountable to keeping their buildings safe for people. Was the building up to code? Uh, you know, there. I'm not an electrical engineer. Um, it's, uh, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of <laughs> um, specifically what was wrong. But we know that um, after that fire, we had uh, the city and the fire department go into a number of buildings in the area uh, and they found electrical issues in, in a lot of them. Uh, and so we had a second building that went without uh, heat, water, uh, or power for, uh, I think it was five, four or five days uh, in the middle of February. Uh, and we ha- this was a 30-story building. We had, I remember meeting with one woman who was six months pregnant walking up 21 flights of stairs every night who didn't have running water or a way to cook food oh my goodness. in her apartment for That's five impossible. days. Yeah. Or, you know, imagine trying to get your kids out to school in the morning and walking down 26 flights of stairs to do it for five days in a row uh, while they're bundled up, uh, you know, uh, with, with no heat and no lights. Um, how are those kids supposed to do their homework when they get home? Um, 
you know, it was a really, really difficult That's time. Extremely challenging. Yeah. And so the bill that I tabled, what it would do is require that uh, landlords of high rise buildings maintain a reserve fund for doing large capital repairs the exact same way that a condo currently has to. Uh, and because one of the issues that we run into is, you know, landlords will come back to their tenants and say, well, you know, I can't afford <laughs> to, to fix the electrical system or to fix the elevators or, or, or sure. whatever repair needs to be done. Uh, and then they'll go to the landlord tenant board and apply for um, uh, above guideline rent increases and just pass those costs for those repairs back on to the, the tenants. Right. Right. So this would require that they're, you know, being proactive and saving for the rainy day when, you know, the boiler needs to be replaced or, um, you know, they need to address, uh, you know, repairs to the to the electrical risers. The same way that, you know, if you're a family and you have a, you know, a home, you set aside a little bit of money every month for the day that comes when the, when the roof needs to be re- replaced. Um, you know, I think that. It's, it's entirely fair to ask large landlords who, you know, are responsible for providing safe housing in some cases for thousands of people um, to be responsible in the same way. Um, and then the other thing that the bill does is makes it possible for tenants to apply to the landlord tenant board to get a rent refund, an abatement it's called, uh, if their landlord uh, isn't doing maintenance on the building. Uh, and they're they're losing access to the services that they're paying for. So, you know, if the landlord has let the elevator break down uh, and you're without elevator access for a substantial amount of time, you're paying for that elevator as part of your rent. Um, and if you're not getting the services you pay for, uh, you should be entitled to a refund. Oh, good move. Yeah. Okay. And we're, so now where does that sit? Where does <laughs> uh, the bill sit? So it's been tabled for first reading. Uh, and uh, we I hopefully will be able to call it up for a second reading Uh Hopefully next year. Okay. Yeah. Meanwhile, these folks are still living in hotels. Yeah, a lot in of there. them. Yeah, a lot of them have been moved into other apartments. Um, a lot of them are staying with families. But again, it's a hard time. Like, I mean, can it's you imagine time. couch surfing I with can. family for a full year? No, I go crazy. Anyone yeah. would. Yeah, and uh, you know, especially appreciating that you know that particular neighborhood uh, has a really high concentration of newcomers to Canada. Uh, a lot of folks that are, are refugees um, and, uh, you know, the trauma that it can cause to go through that kind of displacement uh, again, right? And and how difficult that could be for some of those Very families. hard. Yeah. Very hard. Yeah. So those are some of the, you know, big issues we're seeing in the in the riding. It's, uh, but, you know, housing overall uh, is, is a huge issue. It's, you know. Uh, well, aren't there improvements being made? I mean, Regent Park's going through a huge revitalization yeah. with new housing. Yeah. What What are your thoughts? Well, I live in Regent Park. I'm a big fan of Regent. Uh, always have been. And, uh, you know, the revitalization has been an interesting process to go through. But again, not without challenges. You know, we have uh, a community of kids who have been uh, displaced from their homes, right? Because folks had to had to move out so that the old community housing buildings could come down. Yeah, they had to get um, torn down. They and... had to get torn down building by building, block by block. Uh, and so those families uh, were displaced out of the community. And, uh, you know, think about having school-aged children. And, you know, that's a huge consideration for a lot of families, you know, who don't want to, you know, go through a major family move and uproot their kids, you know, make them have to go to a new school, start All new that friends. Stuff. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's, it's sure. a challenge. Sure. Um, and then, you know, as soon as they kind of get their feet underneath them again, you know, they're moving back into the community after the housing is rebuilt. Uh, but going through that displacement again, coming back. Uh, but, you know, the community doesn't look the same way that they left it. You know, and those kids are, are watching, uh, you know, the trees they played under being cut down and 
um, you know, they're watching the buildings. Right, that they, but that are they, there not positives going on there? I mean, it, it looks absolutely. T- totally different. Yeah, it, absolutely. But it's, you know, I think it's it's just important to, you know, recognize and name the, you know, the challenges that especially the the young people are facing, uh, you know, in that displacement. It's, it's um, you know, yes, we're getting, you know, good, brand new, safe housing uh, out of the deal and, uh, you know, some, some really great services. We have a beautiful aquatic center and community center. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I think when, the, when the buildings come down, right, they, they kind of, they, they cut them sideways, uh, and it's like looking in on a dollhouse and you forget that you're looking in on, on people's homes, right? The places where, where parents watch their babies take their first steps. And it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's a really, I think, vulnerable and emotional time as a community to watch that change take place, you know, and it's, I think, important to acknowledge, uh, you know, a lot of the emotions that people get caught up in, in that process. Right. But but hopefully it's for the positive and for the better because it needed desperately to have a revitalization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, the you know, the the infrastructure, uh, you know, was absolutely uh, in need of, of desperate repair. Um, and it but I, I think, you know, more broadly, the need for that revitalization, I, you know, speaks to the chronic and constant underfunding of community housing all across Ontario. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that I think the, those old buildings got into such a state of disrepair uh, is because, you know, quite frankly, community housing wasn't being properly funded. Uh, there weren't, uh, uh, there wasn't ever enough money coming in for capital repairs. You know, when we look at social housing across the province, we have a $2 billion repair backlog. Uh, and we're we're losing, we're not only, you know, do we need to be building new community housing units, which is not happening, but we're losing stock uh, because the the units are falling into such a state of disrepair that we're losing about a thousand units a year of social housing across the province right now. But what about in your riding? Because isn't that part of the Regent Park revitalization? You have to have so many units that are. Yeah. So we didn't get any net new units. So uh, these are just replacements. It's replacing exactly what with the number of units that were taken out, um, and then supplementing that with. Um, private market uh, condos as well. So it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's shift the neighborhood into a mixed income, you know, mm-hmm. integrated model. How do you um, think that's going? I, is it working? Is, isn't the idea that if you're in social, socialized housing, you're, you're thinking, oh, okay, I can be, I can get out of this. This can be better. Then I'm just generalizing. Don't judge me. Yeah, no. um, but just, <laughs> um, but that, I, I just read a study yeah. that said that was the idea. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's, and it's, you know, I think, you know, the intentions are really good on all front, but, you know, community building takes intention, right? It's, um, you know, we can't just put up shiny new bricks and mortar and expect community to happen organically on its own uh, because we have all of these, you know, shiny new buildings in our neighborhood. Uh, and it's taken a really concerted effort by folks in the neighborhood uh, to try and bridge um, you know, especially those um, those class divides, I think, in the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, there's some groups doing some really amazing work on that front. You know, I think of, you know, the, the Regent Park Neighborhood Association as, as one example. And they, you know, have had to kind of go at their their governance structure a couple of times now to try and um, to try and get it right and make sure that they're, you know, getting equal representation from 
uh, people that live in in the Toronto Community Housing Buildings and people that live in the in the market buildings, um, and trying to bring those people together um, to build build a really strong uh, community. Uh, but it takes you know a lot of community organizing work, and it's Get that um, done for sure. Yeah, but it's it's, it's it, you know it's a really interesting time because we're watching you know the world is also kind of watching in on this project to see what works and what doesn't. Um, right. And you know we're only partway through the process; we're still figuring it out ourselves. But uh, it's uh, it's you know we're the largest social redevelopment project in the country, uh, and so there's a lot of eyes on Regent Park right now. Um, so it's it's exciting to be a part of it, and uh, you know it's not always easy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but there but there are really really good people in the community, you know, doing really exciting work, uh, so that we can we can try to get this right. Well, you were mentioning small things, for example, registration for swimming in the new aquatic center in Regent Park. Yeah. So, again, example of, you know, one of the hiccups that you come across when you're trying to, you know, intentionally design a neighborhood that's going to work for the people that live there. So we have this beautiful uh, aquatic center uh, that was built built, uh, as part of the development. And uh, the issue that we've had over the last number of years is... um, uh, it's well the programming is free uh and so the kids can register for you know free swimming lessons for example uh which the community fought for um and uh but what happens is when the registration opens up uh it's uh, oftentimes families outside of regent park who uh are the first in in line online and getting in there first uh and we were noticing that kids in the neighborhood weren't getting access to the the swimming classes. Well, what's what's with that? Right, and and it came down to the fact that again, when you recognize that you're serving, um, you know, a lower income community, a lot of those families don't have computers at home or they don't have internet, um, and so when the registration opens up, uh, you know, at six o'clock in the morning to get your kids registered for the programs, uh, you know, these families are out waiting in line in front of the building uh, while the spots fill up online. Uh, and so I, I really have to give a lot of credit to our our municipal councillor, uh, Christian Wong Tam who really took that fight back to the city of Toronto. Uh, and uh, they've made some changes to the, to the registration program to make sure that our local kids are actually getting in there to use to use the services that are, um, you know, what makes our community a community. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And are there guns and gangs issues in that area still? Um, I mean, there have been shootings in the area. I watched a little feature recently on a TV show, and it was showing there are crack houses in the area. It's, you know, I yeah, I won't lie. You know, it's um, we do still see gun violence. Um, it's part of my own story. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons I ran. Uh, right. Was uh, after the it. after the the Lamarge Champagne shooting, and um, it has a huge ripple effect on the community uh, when that happens. Um, and uh, but I I think that there's also a lot of good that goes on in the community around. Um, you know, the issue of gun violence specifically. And, um, you know, it's watching the community come together and support each other after these incidences. And it's not exclusive to Regent Park either. You know, gun violence does happen all over the city. Sure. Um, But one of the beautiful things that I see in my community is the way that people come together and pick each other up after these situations. And so, I mean, I remember being, going back out onto the corner after the shooting back in 2017, and, um, you know, my, my neighbors were coming out of the house and, and checking in with folks that were affected and, you know, pointing us to, uh, you know, victim services and counseling and, um, uh, you know, just, just doing that, that work of loving each other <laughs> uh, after a really traumatic incident uh, that uh, was really something I hadn't seen in, in other neighborhoods that I've lived in in the city. 
And um, it it really, I think, highlighted to me that we were in the right place, you know, and that there was something special going on in Regent Park. Yeah. That's so good. It was good to hear. Because I live in that, I live near there too. So. Yeah, you're down by the Humane Society. I'm watching, right, <laughs> on the, in the new Corktown neighborhood. Yeah. There's a whole other new neighborhood there. Yeah. A lot going on. Yeah. And the underpass there is beautiful with all the, the murals. I love that. If, if, if you're listening and you've not seen Underpass Park, it is it's worth gorgeous. going to see. Because it was this derelict space underneath the the Gardner, yeah. Adelaide, Richmond, when was she? But um, it's, so you go down Lower Broadview, hang a, like along King, hang a right at Lower Broadview, and then you'll come upon Underpass Park, and there's been artwork now. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, everything that was a concrete arch... <coughs> supporting a roadway yeah is now this fantastic art and there's always really cool community stuff going on down there i remember during the election we were down canvassing in the area and uh there were fire dancers out rehearsing under the underpass there uh and it that was one of the wildest things i have ever seen was there was like 40 of them too all spinning these like hoops and batons that were all on fire uh yeah it was stunning yeah, and there's a little farmer's market down there mm-hmm. now, and there's sort of farmer's market. I noticed <clears throat> in going back to Regent Park, there's yeah. a couple of oh yeah new little fruit stands. It looks yeah. like they're well, operated. they're not new. They they're just more visible now. Um, mm-hmm. so they were kind of tucked away uh, in between in the kind of little nooks and crannies between the old Regent buildings. Um, but now that uh, those buildings have come down, they're they're kind of more in a in a main street kind of position and they're more visible. But, uh, you know, they've been there for a long time. But we also I mean, we have so much good food programming that goes on in Regent Park. Honestly, it's amazing. Uh, we have Taste of Regent Park. That's every Wednesday night in the summer. Uh, so we have, uh, you know, all the local food vendors come out. It's it's uh, we have our, um, uh, we also put on a, a meal in the bake oven. So we have a like a wood burning oven as part of the the big park there in Regent um, that uh, some of the organizations will will activate. And so they'll do. They make pizzas in there. They make scones. They've done corn on the cob. All kinds of really delicious stuff. Well, I'm I'm walking through there on the wrong nights. I know. Well, so Wednesday nights, like Wednesday, Wednesday nights, nights and okay. and then they do a, a movie night. So the Regent Park Film Fest partners with Taste of Region, uh, and so you can go and get your dinner, uh, and then about an hour later at, at sunset, uh, every Wednesday night in the summer, they put on uh, a movie on a big inflatable screen in the park, and the whole neighborhood comes out uh, into that space, and it's 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 a blast. Yeah, it's really positive. Yeah. All right, so now you have Corktown. What's going on there? We touched upon it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, a lot of really great, uh, you know, community organizing. Um, I was just down in Corktown not that long ago for their park cleanup. Um, I did all the park cleanups across the riding, but I have to say it was the Corktown one that was the most well attended. Uh, so definitely a lot of folks that are really interested in in uh, in environmental issues and yeah, their, I did that one last year. Their, Actually, their it was community really, green really space. Good. Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, and there's some, they have some really cool recycling programs actually in some of the buildings there where they have um, like higher levels of separation um, in partnership with I don't know all the details of it, but um, it's a, it's a handful of buildings that uh, have this extra um, sophisticated extra. Oh. Uh, recycling program as opposed yeah. to in my building there's just you put your recycle it's either recycling organics or yeah you know, the basic garbage yeah yeah, yeah. oh kind of curious what that's all about yeah. They, additional layer of 
And then you've got, do you, you, does the distillery district? Not the distillery district. So the boundary line is Mill Street. So so there's, there's, uh, I have a few condos that are kind of on that north side of Mill Street there that are in my riding. Uh, but that's the neighboring riding of Spadina, Fort York to the south, which is MPP Chris Glover, also a new Democrat. Yes. Yeah. Then we're getting uh, the new Indigenous Health Center on Mill Street, right next to the Y. Mm-hmm. That's part of you, right? Uh, next to the Y. Cooper Ku Y. Yes, Cooper Ku Y, which yeah. is beautiful. It is. It's a stunning space. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got really great community rooms in there. So I know that... Um, you know, the Corktown folks, the the neighborhood and businesses, the residents and business association, they're always doing uh, consultations and meetings in the Cooper Coup. So it's, we get to spend a lot of FaceTime with them down there. So, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of great things going on on King Street. Yes. A lot of buildings being sold and made into interesting new little cafes. Yeah. Little restaurants. There's a whole new restaurant coming up next to the Body Blitz Spa yeah. on King Street East. Yeah. A lot of really exciting small businesses really Exciting small yeah. businesses and yeah. Yeah, so it's quite a, an area of yeah. growth and change and excitement yeah. and stuff. Anything, any last words for us today? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to the summer and uh, getting to spend time in all of the really great parts of, uh, of, of Toronto Centre. We have so many great neighborhoods, so... And how's Nova? Tell us about Nova, your dog. Oh, she's a handful, but we love her. She is a Husky Border Collie mix, and uh, she's faster than us and sometimes smarter than us. Uh, which is always a, a terrifying mix, uh, but she's a lot of fun, and we like to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, out at the dog parks in the in the riding with her. And we sometimes get down to Cherry Beach and go on little adventures, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. Right, she must need a lot of exercise. That kind of yeah, breed oh, mix. Yeah, absolutely, and and. Thankfully, I have a spouse who does the majority of that work. <laughs> <laughs> when do you find time on oh, top of everything else? Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. So when you go out, do you bring Nova with you? Sometimes. She's a rescue and she gets a little skittish in crowds sometimes, but we've been doing a lot of work with her and she's getting a lot better. So we've started taking her out to kind of smaller, um, less crowded events, maybe with fewer children, and she's starting to get acclimatized to that. Uh, But I'm hoping in a few years we'll be able to start bringing her out to some of the bigger, you know, marches and parades like Pride. Right. She could wear a little cape. You can get a little cape made for (laughs) for Nova by the... Cape by Jeremy Dutcher's Cape Maker. <laughs> Plug for Zoff. <laughs> yeah, quick question. What do you think of politicians who do not march in Pride Parade? I think it's really disappointing. I think that um, it's a really important show of support to the community to show up um, and to not just show up when it's Pride, but to show up all year round and challenge uh, the homophobia and transphobia that uh, continues to exist across this province. Uh, and I think that making excuses for not marching in pride um, is is hurtful to the community. Okay. Just wanted to get your <laughs> thoughts on that. A lot of people have a lot of thoughts on that issue. Suze, it's been just wonderful having you here. Thank you yeah. so much for coming in to Element FM. It was great to hear more about what's going on with you how things are going, and I wish you luck. Thank you so much. Up and coming. You get a little time off in the summer? Not really, but, you know, maybe the odd Saturday. <laughs> maybe the odd Well, we'll see you around then. Yeah, Everyone, absolutely. anyone who lives in St. Jamestown, Regent Park, Moss Park, Corktown. Cabbage Town. Cabbage Town. Distillery, so, not distillery. St. Lawrence Market. That is a lot. Yeah. A lot going on. So we'll yeah. look for you out there. Okay. And hopefully with Nova as well, your dog, get get her get her all trained on 
helping you out with your job, you know. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much. You've been listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app, and our website, elementfm.ca, that's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin. I've been filling in today for David Moses. And thank you. Special thanks to my guest, NDP MPP, Suze Morrison, representing the riding of Toronto Centre. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.